Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Thanks so much for coming today. I want to yeah, introduce our speaker. So we're talking about labour and politics in Indonesia, and we're grateful to have Michelle Ford from the Southeast Asia Centre at Sydney University, Professor of Southeast Asian History, Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Studies Centre, and the co-author of Labour and Politics in Indonesia with Terry Paraway. And I think the presentation is going to cover some of this material in this new book that's just come out with Cambridge. Many other publications on, the, on this list as well. A very impressive publication record. Michelle, you've got about 35, 40 minutes or so, and then we'll have some questions and comments after that. So, Michelle, over to you. Great. Well, thank you. Ian warned me that the audience might be a bit small, but it's looking nice and intimate. Okay, so this book, Labour and Politics in Indonesia, came out of an ARC grant I had with Cherry Carraway, who's at the University of Minnesota. And earlier work on the Indonesian Union movement had indicated to me, at least, that unions had gone from being very apolitical in the Suharto period to being not just engaged in politics, but really strategic political actors from 2000 and, well, really starting in 2005. So the book covers 98 to about 2018, and we particularly look at the 2014 elections, 2009-14. We've done some work since on the 2019 elections, and I'll refer briefly to that at the end. So I know most of you are not Indonesian specialists, so a little bit of background in terms of how this fits into politics. As you may know, Indonesia transitioned from uh, 32 years of authoritarian rule to a democracy in 1998. The political economy remained very dominated by networks of political and economic elites. So some very prominent scholars of Indonesia, like Medi Hadis, Jeffrey Winters and so on, argue that basically nothing has changed. We've co-edited a book called Beyond Oligarchy where we challenge that argument because although we're not being Terry there, that's with Tom Pinsky, but essentially, yes, these, these high-level actors are very much still there, but that doesn't really help us explain the day-to-day -day engagement around politics, which has changed really substantially with really serious changes to the political systems in that period. In terms of the labour movement, it remains small and divided, and it's got low workplace power even now, and no links to individual political parties. So there's no equivalent of the Australian Labour Party or the British Labour Party or even the Democratic Party in, in America. And this is, makes it very unusual for unions around the world to engage in politics if those things aren't in place. So our big puzzle for this book was that given these unfavourable circumstances, how did the union movement succeed in creating space for working class interests in the political arena? And of course our finding is that they did succeed, even though with many qualifications. And what we know happened is that they started with some tried and true tactics from the Suharto period around street-based mobilisation power to influence policy. So this wasn't something new. The Indonesian labour movement, trade unions, even the official union, had pushed the government at various times, particularly in the 80s and 90s, to change policy by getting everyone else on the street. So the Australian labour movement's done a little bit of this over time, but really in Indonesia it was the street that was the locus of union power, such as and it was in the Suharto period, rather than factories or workplaces. And that continues to be the case. Having done that, they leveraged the opportunity structures that had been made available, not just through democratisation, but also through an intensive process of decentralisation, which was also introduced in the, the post-98 period, to secure massive wage rises. And I'll talk you through these, but the key point here is that local governments, 
city governments, regional governments were given the power to make the decisions around wages. They were negotiated through a tripartite committee at the local level. And this gave unions not just more power, because of course their opponents were much less formidable at that level than they would be at the national level, but also promoted a lot of more grassroots mobilisation than had been typically the case through the actual union structure. So having had a lot of success there, it was actually the parties that first reached out to the unions because they could see them as potential voting blocks. They thought that if they could get key union officials on board, then that would guarantee them the union vote. Now, of course, Indonesia is a big country and a lot of it's not industrialised. So all the things I'm saying today are very much around a, number of, a small number of key industrial centres. Outside of those centres, unions have very little influence. But again, the decentralisation process created opportunities in those industrial areas that did not exist in pre-democratic Indonesia. So the parties approached the unions. At first the unions went, oh, we're not meant to be political, that's not what unions are meant to do. But over time they decided that if their officials were going to be involved in politics, the union should have some say in what they did and said, rather than just their being able to use their union positions as leverage for other purposes. So they started you know, negotiating about running people in the legislature, but this intermediate step that I've identified there is really important. That party-slash-legislature process was happening on one side, but at the same time, with decentralisation, local heads of governments were now contested positions. And so they needed voting blocks too. And so there came to be this virtual cycle, virtual cycle between the wage negotiations, the local power of the unions, and then the desire of particular people to get local office, which gave unions a lot of leverage around, around those local executive elections. And that created space for programmatic demands. And I must say here that programmatic demands are very unusual in Indonesia. The parties are not very programmatic in their orientation. They tend to be based on big figures, celebrities, sometimes religious, or the, what's called the aliran in Indonesia, the religious versus the... So the Muslim versus the, the rest dynamic in Indonesia. But we have evidence, and I'll talk you through that, of negotiations that were not just about give me a favour as an individual, but actually what this is, you can, if you do this for workers, if you undertake to do this for workers, then we will vote for you, which is the way democracy is supposed to work. But as we know, including in Australia, it often doesn't work that way. So that's kind of the process I'm going to talk you through today. I won't go into a lot of detail about how the labour movement looks. Suffice to say, it's very complicated. And actually, since we put this book together, that picture's changed again. But at the time, we were dealing with the book up to 218. This was pretty much the picture. So the top union was the former state union, which split in 1998-99, and the second one was formed with international support, KSBE, which has most of the big sort of internationally oriented unions, which are pretty much all actually splits from federations of the Suharto period. So reformist people within the state unions got the opportunity after the fall of Suharto to start these new organisations with support from international unions. Kaspersi, the third one's important, that had been the poster child of the international labour, alternative labour movement of the 90s. And then there's a number of other small confederations, including some that are more leftist. The big three I've mentioned here are very much centrist unions. All nominally secular. KSBSI, the third one, has a reputation for being more Christian because of its connections with the Batak people of North Sumatra. Its membership is much more varied than that, but it has a lot of support from Christian international unions. So there's you know, some truth to that. SPAE, the second one, is secular and mixed, but it has a reputation for being Islamist because of its leader, Said Iqbal, 
who is not a card-carrying member of the main Islamist party, but he's certainly a sympathiser. And then SBSI, the top one, Undergarni's a Christian again, but that's a very, very secular union. So there's a bit of religious dimension there. And then you've got all these other unaffiliated unions. When we did the field study, we looked at five field sites, and I've marked them here. Tangarang and Bakasi are industrial zones to the east and west of Greater Jakarta, which is the capital. Gresik is just outside of Surabaya, Indonesia's second largest city. Delhi Serdang, which is up on the left, is an industrial area outside the third largest city of Medan. And Batam, which is on an island just to the south of Singapore, is an industrial zone. So we looked at those five field sites and we chose those field sites because they had very different dominant manufacturing sectors, they had different histories of independent organising during the Suharto period and they had different dominant unions. So we were looking to really tease out some of the nuances in the relationship between unions and politics in these areas. And you can see that you know, Batam and, and Bakasi had very little Suharto-era independent organising whereas the other three had different but all important Suharto-era organising. The other thing to note is, of course, garments, which are pre predominant in Tangerang, but also there was some presence in Medan, not so much now. That had a lot of international attention in the 80s and 90s, and so there are a lot of small NGO-associated unions that developed in those areas with the support of international NGOs rather than international unions. So we were trying to bring all those factors in in our um, selection of sites. They are also the major industrial sites, so we tried to cover everywhere that was important. Okay, so I want to talk to you about four factors that we think are really important in explaining the way that unions came to be political actors in Indonesia, historical legacies, changes in the political industrial relations systems, tactical creativity, which is, for the labour scholar's point of view, maybe the most important, but also networks and alliances. So I've briefly alluded to some of this, but the main things you need to understand is that the left was basically non-existent during the Sahara period, having been quite prominent before 65. There'd been a depoliticisation of society. People were told they, they, need, they shouldn't be political, they should focus on development. And that there's a, a pesto democracy, an internet, a democracy festival every five years. And that's, you should come out, you should vote, and that's it. And that's had really long-lasting legacies in Indonesia, as you know, I'm sure Colin could tell us a lot more. Destruction of links between parties and unions in 65. So before 65, all the major unions had at least informal links to major political parties. And often the same people ran the unions and the political parties. That really got decoupled by 73. This ideology that I referred to before of economic unionism, so the idea that unions should be by, for and of the workers. And my first book, which was called Labor, Workers and Intellectuals, Actually, my argument was that NGOs played such an important role in creating the seeds for the reinvigoration of this, the labour movement in the late Sahara period, but even they had bought this economic unionism ideology, so they always second-guessed their role as intellectuals in the labour movement, which actually then put sort of limits on what they felt they could do. And, of course, in the union itself, unionists in the reformist sections of the main unions also really struggled with the idea that unions had a political role either small p or capital P. Um, but of course I'm talking about the capital P today. And then finally, under the new order, even before the new order, there was this exclusionary corporatist structure. So unions, much as in Vietnam, as in China, are seen to be part of the state. 
The revolution has been achieved, was the language of Sukarno. They're part of the state under guided democracy. And all the new order did is really flip that into a capitalist version and kept all the main things. The organic corporatist models, David Bushio's work is really the, the defining stuff on this and David Reeve. So unions were controlled by the state and the logic was that everyone had their interest group. Women had their interest group, everyone had their interest group, fishers, whoever, but you're all part of this state apparatus. In terms of changes in political institutions after 98, the key ones I want to highlight here, as I mentioned before, are first, the re-empowerment of the national legislature. So there were actually, went from being a total rubber stamp to having significant power in deciding the structures, the systemic boundaries in Indonesia. And one of the key things that happened here too is straight after Sahato stepped down, his replacement, who had been a Sahato protégé, really went... Labor was one of the first things they reformed, right? Because it sent good signals internationally. So there was a lot of change very early on. Suddenly, you, if going from a single state sanctioned union to as many unions as like, you only need 10 people, signing all the international conventions, all that sort of stuff happened very quickly. So Labor was in some ways a domain in which the political change happened faster than more generally. So then you've got this new space where unions are not so controlled by the state and they've got more opportunities at the national level to negotiate policy, which, as I said before, was not a new tactic, but they had new space to do it in. And then at the local level, Indonesia was really worried about separatism in this period. So instead of devolving to the states some levels of power, they actually devolved, as I said before, to the city and the districts. And districts are like, you know, a shire. They're just a non-metropolitan area. And they all had local legislatures now and they had local heads. So you suddenly had these political domains at the local level, which, as I said before, are really important in creating space for unions to engage as political actors. Of course, there were changes in industrial relations institutions as well, and as I mentioned briefly just then, but to be, give it more detail, freedom of association was introduced. There was a rapid growth in the number of unions, hundreds within a couple of years. Decentralisation of the minimum wage setting processes, which as I flagged earlier, are really key to this political story. And they, the main things about them were that they provided incentives to build up local union networks before unions had mostly operated at the national level, such as they were, and also to engage with local power holders. In terms of tactical creativity, the three things that are really important here is first, these new opportunities. But second, this virtuous circle where you've got success in one area and that gives you motivation and aspiration. You suddenly imagine that you could be a player in other areas. One of my favourite interviews in 2007 in Surabaya was with a guy who worked in KFC. And he was just a normal guy, had finished high school, not much else. But he'd become active in a local union and he said to me, and the parties were starting to approach him to see if they'd run for them. And he said, I had never imagined that I even had a real vote, a real voice, let alone this kind of potential influence. So that sense of excitement that you were not just someone who was ruled, but you could actually contribute to the democratic process was really fundamental. And I can't emphasise enough how much of a change that was in how this constituency saw themselves. As you know, To become a political actor was a really, really new thing for most of them, even though they'd been quite active, some of them, industrially before that. And then the other important thing is that political engagement was iterative. So a phrase that comes across, and I've actually used this in a title of an article once, is learning by doing. They felt that they were, there was a lot to learn. They actually went in quite confident, some of them, and realised they didn't know as much as they thought, but there was this process of learning and then experimenting in new domains. So a lot of, and again, people who really push the oligarchy thesis, one of their, they say, oh, Labor doesn't matter, what has it achieved? 
my argument would be actually if you just dig underneath that a bit, you see this incremental iterative process that's actually really important not just for its outcomes but also for that process and what that does to create democratic citizens, to create people who are actors and not just acted upon. And then in networks and alliances, these were really important. You know, all these new unions, I remember telling a group of unions, various unions, Sometimes having someone like me come in would actually get people in the room that would never be in the room together and I commented to them, it's actually really great to see people in this room talking to each other because that didn't happen. They were very quick to criticise each other. They were very quick to sort of claim that they were the only true union. But what this decentralisation process did was create incentives for them to work across union lines at the local level and this happened a lot and in the book we, we deal with this quite a lot. So these local alliances became really important also in the national domain because when they were pushing for national campaigns, the local alliances actually mobilised at the local level in support of, say, the social security campaign, which was, you know, unions were the primary actor in achieving universal social security for Indonesia. And although the system's not perfect, it is so much better than what was there. So my husband's Indonesian. When my sister-in-law had a heart attack at the age of 46 back in 2007, she died because they didn't have the money to get her into hospital and they didn't have time to contact us to get it. Now, if someone has a serious health problem, they will get treated and they don't end up with a big bill. So it's actually a lot better in Indonesia than in America now. And that change was... Well, it's fairly low. But... I know, but still, that change was actually a product of union activism with the support of the Germans, because social security <laughs> is the German thing. But that was an idea thing. The work was done by the unions, and they, they collaborated with parliamentarians at the national level. They did all sorts of really interesting stuff around that campaign. And that was you know, the level of coordination and sophistication of that campaign for the Indonesian context, regardless of whether what your background is, was really quite amazing. And again, programmatic in a way that most Indonesian politics is not. So these networks and alliances were really important because street-based politics remained the main domain. Most of these unions, there are some exceptions, but most unions remain quite weak in the workplace. They don't have a lot of workplace power. And that's one of the reasons why that minimum wage negotiation at the local level is so important. Because if you can't negotiate for decent wages in the factory, if you can get a decent basic safety net standard, that actually becomes the ceiling and not the floor, but at least you've got something that the government's saying you should have, and then that becomes a negotiating point. What's interesting, though, is that the networks and alliances proved to be a bit, quite a bit less effective in the political arena than in the economic arena, but it didn't mean they were useless. So let me tell you a bit more about the wage struggles. As I've just mentioned, they're very important because of the weakness in workplace bargaining power. And even in Indonesia, I must have the caveat here that many employers just ignore these requirements, but at least it signals this point. So it gives unions something in the workplace to actually organise around. The, the government says you should do this, rather than saying we want more than the government says you should do. But, you know, when I've done interviews with factory managers and owners in the non-export factories, they just openly admit that industrial relations systems don't actually touch their workplaces. They only become an issue if you've got a really big problem. But otherwise, no-one's checking, no-one's enforcing. So these things, they are something that... It's not just a given. It is something you have to struggle for, even if it's not there. But at the local level, the important thing was the wage councils, which were tripartite. So they had government and employers and workers, which, of course, means government ends up with the final decision. And they were supposed to be based on service. Uh, oh, yeah, we do a survey of the market, work out what the cost is, and that helps you determine how much the wages should go up. But they became really intense bargaining arenas. And the local officials would support the union side because 
the local power holders had needed the union votes to get their position, right? So you ended up with this negotiated relationship between the local electoral cycles and these wage councils. And so you had situations where the wages went up and up and up until 2015. It really is up to 50% in some of the districts. And you can see there that there was also a neighbourhood effect in some of these areas. So you get, this is Jabotabek and Ring 1 is the big area around Jakarta. The Batam is the blue one, Medan is the brown one. And we also did around Surabaya, but it's not shown in this graph. So you can see these huge raises. And of course, business, you can imagine, if suddenly you have to pay 50% more, you're not too happy. So they put a lot of pressure on the central government and the central government tried a number of times to find ways to reverse this. But they actually, for a long time, actually continued to support workers on this because they were also under pressure. And one of those mobilisational tactics which was really effective was workers just blocked the toll roads on both sides of Jakarta. So that really upsets the middle class, which puts pressure on the government and so on. But eventually, by 2015, and this is the sad story I'll tell you at the end, the government actually basically balderalised those wage councils and took, took them, just took them out of the equation by introducing this formula for wage setting that was really set, and that's really changed the thing. So from wage struggles to programmatic politics, I've talked you through why election, local elections matter, they matter because they had to sign off on the minimum wage recommendations. They also decide what kind of personnel goes into inspecting labour issues in particular areas and they can pressure the local legislatures also to pass pro or anti-worker bylaws. So there's both legislative and sort of implementation domains here. I won't talk through this, but you can see there are many elections for executive positions where unions had a real impact. And they weren't just asking for patronage. Sometimes patronage was involved, which is another big argument in Indonesian political science, right, that it's all about patronage and money politics. We would argue that it's not necessarily in this domain. The red one is red because that was actually a Labor candidate who ran for a district head. He didn't win, but he did very well. He got third place. And that was without all the sort of money that goes into campaigns normally. And there was a really good story there about all sorts of forms of mobilisation. So this is proof that these things happened in four of the districts. It wasn't so... In Delhi Sabrang, this, this mechanism really wasn't as obvious. But in the other four sites, there's very clear evidence of direct negotiation and follow-through on labour-related policy. So it wasn't the case that these candidates just said, oh, we'll do this for you, and then didn't. Sometimes that happened. But in a lot of cases, they followed through on several of their key promises to the labour movement. And you can imagine, with all the competing demands on you in those positions, that's not a foregone conclusion, right? That's a, that's a very conscious decision. And where they didn't follow through, where they were going out for re-election, they really got punished. So it's a really good example of that. I won't go through all of these, but even in Banten, which is famous in Indonesia as being sort of the core of the oligarchy domain, with Atut, whose dad had been a strongman, a martial arts slash thug strongman. <laughs> and when I talked to some of the politicians, we interviewed people from a range of parties, that third quote really is like, this was a lovely quote, here's, it's the case of here's the money, here's the machete. So they'll bribe you, but if you don't comply, then you know, you've got to watch out. And then the question is, why does someone like this woman try to woo the labour movement. Surely she's got all these other resources. Why does it matter? And it mattered because of elite competition. So the former mayor of Tangerang had done a deal with the union when he was mayor, and he thought they'd support him in the gubernatorial election. 
And then, you know, many other members of Atut's family were in other positions, and some of them had been in some quite tight races. So she really felt she needed the union. So she turned up to a whole lot of union functions. She also bribed all the union leaders by sending them on the Hajj. And it's always a bit of a mixture with patronage, but there were certainly some really programmatic domains in there. She went to prison after this, so, you know, she was, she was quite a, a thing. The other one I'll, I'll just give an example of is Bakasi. The unions in Bakasi were really strong and had much more of a factory focus than in most places, and they were actually quite reluctant to engage in politics. So they, were, they didn't engage as early as Tangram, but in the big election in 2014, they really ran hard, and then they ran that candidate who got third for the mayoral election. I won't go into the details here, but that's a really good case, and if you're interested, you can read the book. We did a big survey. We did surveys in Bakasi and Tangerang after the 2009 elections, the 2014 elections and the 2019 elections. And these figures are only for 2014. But the other thing that they really did was out of that process, before 2009, national-level politicians just didn't really think about Labor much. And then in 2009, Prabowo, who's the current president, but when he was running for vice president, he actually started wooing the unions because he could see them as a potential voting bloc. And then in 2014, it was interesting because he went hard. He had a MOU with one of the big three, and that MOU had really specific demands that were all about Labor, things that he would give the Labor movement if he was elected, and also he promised the leader of that union the Ministry of Manpower position. And they went hard, and he didn't win. And Jokowi, who is the current president, didn't at that stage didn't care. Well, he'd, he'd, tried to do, he'd done a deal with the same union in 2012 when he was running for governor, and he didn't deliver. So the head of the union was really angry with him. So we had a, one side really just not doing much on the union side, and the other side really going hard. And in Bakasi, you can see where the union really pushed the difference between what the union vote was, 86% of union members voted for Prabhupada, and 66% of the general population voted for parole in both those districts. And it was less so in Tangarang because different unions were powerful. But you know, this really is really challenges the idea that social movements can't get out and influence politics, influence voters in Indonesia. And as far as we understand, this is kind of the only study that's done this at this sort of level. As I said, we've done the 2019 statistics, but I can't say anything too sensible about those for you yet. So the other part is this running for actual office themselves as in the legislature, not in the executive. So we've just basically talked about all the executive part. So I've talked you through a lot of this, but you know, the local legislatures are important because you can actually get local regulations passed. And these can have a really big impact, not just on what factory owners need to do, but for example, is there tr transport made freely available to workers? Is education made more accessible to workers' children? There's a whole lot of social issues that... In the cities where there's a large concentration of factory workers in particular, there are lots of other policies that matter for the lifestyle and quality of life of workers. And also the third thing is really important, that they can actually push for better monitoring of the industrial relations requirements. Because, of course, they're set at the national level, but they're monitored at the local level or not monitored, as I suggested before. So basically, having first started approaching the unions in 2004 but not really having an impact, that's what got the unions thinking about it. But on the political side of things, what was really interesting is PKS, which is the main Islamist party, which really went all out engaging with the unions. And this is not Prabowo's party. This is the very uh, reformist kind of very orthodox Islamist party of the middle class. 
And this is actually a story about contingency as well, though, because one of the reasons they became so involved is one of the key strategists had done a, some study, a master's in the Netherlands, and had come across unions there. And so he brought this sort of knowledge of unions home with him. And he had started to engage much earlier with the leaders of a number of big unions from a range of confederations who were sympathetic to the party. So he'd been doing that for a long time. And then for 2009, he actually got a formal written MOU with SPN, which is the main, main textiles and garment union. And he had an informal agreement with FSPME, which is the metal workers, which is the most prominent union in Indonesia. And so the metal workers' head actually ran for PKS in Riau as a national candidate in 2009. Didn't get in, but was very close. And the strategist, I, we interviewed him again after the election, and he said, well, the main reason he didn't win was because I got sick. So because he got sick, the party strategist, he couldn't go up and strong-arm the local party people to support Iqbal. So what happened was Iqbal did very well on the island of Batam, where all the workers are, but that electoral district also includes a number of other islands, and basically they were a no-go zone for him. And I interviewed the local party people in Batam as well, and they confirmed this story. So he was parachuted in, like you know, all local branches everywhere that resented that, but PKS particularly resented it because it is a cadre-based party, unlike a number of the other Indonesian parties. So it actually pissed them off even more. So he would have got in otherwise. He was, he was quite, quite close and he would have got in if he'd had party support. The other thing in Batam at that stage was the local unions got really engaged in the legislative elections without the blessing of the central people. So they actually started the process of the union really seriously thinking about political engagement as a federation. Then in 2014, they engaged in a much more structured way as a central union. In 2019, they were not the only union that engaged in a structured way. It actually spread, even though they had failed in 2014. They supported the wrong guy in the presidential election. They got up two candidates to the national legislature and a number of others at local levels. But that demonstration effect actually convinced a number of other unions to start engaging politically as well in 2019. So in terms of the strategy, as I've mentioned, in 2009 they worked very closely with PKS, Batam led the way. There was some activity in Tangerang and Bekasi, which is the heartland of the metal workers, which is the main union I'm talking about here, was really suspicious. And also they had better workplace relationships, so they relied on politics a bit less. 2014 they decided to field union candidates in many parties, so they didn't tie themselves to a party. Batam was a mess. There'd been all this internal fighting, so it was really out of the picture in 2014, whereas it had led to 2009. And then they did better than expected in Tangerang, and in Bakasi they ran the nine candidates and they got two elected. And this, again, these people had nothing but mobilisational power. They didn't have the money that other candidates had, they didn't have the party connections. It was purely mobilisational power. 2019, they adjusted it again. And what's really interested me was this process. The, the level of sophistication as they learnt more about politics because originally they kind of thought everyone who supported them in the factory would support them in the ballot box and of course that's not the way voting works. So there was a lot of learning about that through this period. But there were changes in the electoral rules and brought, that brought, before the, elect, the legislative elections had been held a number of months before the presidential elections and they were brought together in 2019. So this was quite interesting, some of the strategies of the this union, which still supported Prabowo's party, which is called Gurindra, they actually used it to, like in areas where they knew Prabowo had support, they'd combine the Prabowo, the presidential and 
legislative campaigning. And then in areas where they knew that Prabowo was not supported, they'd just pretend Prabowo didn't exist in those areas. So it was quite, for Indonesia, that's quite a sophisticated process. And Owen, the guy who had gone for district head in 2017 and come third, was elected to the national parliament. Again, no money. He ran with a small level businessman as his partner, actually, but there was union resources that got him elected. Now, this is going back to 2014, but you can see that for FSPME, which is the union I've just been talking about, the awareness of union candidates was much higher than for the other unions. And those boxes, the blue ones are because he won in 2009, Yellow, the orange is the same electorate in 2014, and the grey one is another electorate in 2014, because we wanted to show the nuances, because some of it's about the people who are running as well, right? So, just to conclude... What's really interesting from a Labor perspective is how unusual this pathway to political influence is because the unions didn't rely on structural power. The unions aren't very well embedded in the system in Indonesia and they didn't rely on associational power in the workplace either, which is another form of key union power that we often talk about. The other interesting thing is that they didn't have enduring partnerships with political parties or with NGOs or other civil society organisations, although there were some attempts to build these. It really was the, the Labor movement by itself, not in a broader social movement sort of structure. The key factors that explain their success is this ability to deploy mobilisational power in the streets, not as individual unions, but in those local networks, and then those local networks led into more national networks. And then it was this success that allowed them to leverage the new opportunities that came through democratisation and decentralisation to really, we believe, quite a remarkable effect, given all the constraints on unions in Indonesia. Thank you. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.